my goodness, that was the most amazing conversation. It went straight to my brand heart. This week, I spoke to Greg Hoffman, former CMO of Nike, and now the author and founder of Modern Arena. Greg spent two decades, can you even believe that? Well, nearly actually three at Nike, helping to build it into one of the most empowering, iconic brands of our time. This is the guy responsible for majority of the famous Nike ads that we all know about. And he spoke about this relationship and I've never heard anybody speak about brand in this way of like empathy and curiosity and courage and playing this huge role in people's lives. And Greg believes that we need to be more human. And it's everything I believe. And just to hear a master speak about it, about emotional connection. Oh my goodness, I was in heaven. And then he went and wrote a book as well. Greg is a global brand leader. He's, I would say, a true visionary, a titan of innovation. And as you can imagine, I was hanging off his every word. And I know you're going to be as well. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown. I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street for my kitchen table, and since then, I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses, and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to Adobe, who've helped bring this podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hi, Greg. Can I just say I am... Very excited, as I was just saying to you, uh, to speak to you today. I'm going to, well, well, firstly, welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Thank you very much. Calling in from uh, Oregon on the West Coast of America. What's the weather like? Well, like London can be, we're on the same line, right? So it's uh, a little bit cloudy, a little bit overcast, but uh, the temperature's just perfect. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. I'm going to introduce you to everybody because um, for those of you listening, we are speaking to Greg, who's the former chief marketing officer at Nike. I'm right in saying Nike, aren't I, Greg, just before I even start carrying on there. There's always that conversation, isn't there? There is. Uh, You know, there's people that grew up saying Nike. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with that, but it is Nike. <laughs> and you're also the founder of Modern Arena, where you advise startups and nonprofits in creating brand strength and social impact. And you're also, congratulations, now the author of a brilliant book called Emotion by Design. What was that like writing that book? Oh, again, thank you. It was, uh, as they all are, it was a journey. But uh, it was one that I greatly enjoyed, and I just couldn't wait to share my perspectives and experiences from, you know, working 27 years at one of the most influential and coolest brands in the world. Yeah. And um, I hope that people get a lot out of that. I can imagine at a dinner party, someone says, oh, so Greg, what do you do? And you're like... (laughs) 
you know, just the CMO of Nike and like almost showstopper. It's like asking someone and they're like a dolphin trainer or something. You know, it must be one of those things that was a pretty good job title to be sharing with people. Well, no question. Uh, Absolutely an honor and privilege to work at the brand and to interact and engage with these amazing athletes from all sports. And not to mention um, being able to engage and inspire so many different types of uh, consumers around the world and everyday athletes like you and me. And so um, I just am so thankful and grateful for the almost three decades I spent there. I'd be glad, though, that I wasn't an accountant next to you. And then you turn around and you say, what do you do? Oh, oh, uh, don't worry about what I do. Let's just get back to you. And that's what I want to do right now, because I wanted to start with something that you previously said, as I feel it goes right to the heart of your work and your message that brands can create meaningful impact. You said that if you want your brand to inspire loyalty and change the world, you need to create an emotional bond between consumers and your product. You need to make people part of something important that makes them better than they were before. When you get it right, you won't just have customers, you'll gain fans. Tell me, do you think that this is even more important and relevant as we move through the 21st century and almost post-pandemic world? Oh, I, I really do. I think, again, if you strive to not only build business growth and brand strength, but also create the type of social and cultural impact that I believe that the world needs, you definitely have to be a relationship brand, not a transactional brand. Mm. And to become a brand that has a deep meaning in your audience's lives and in culture, that has to come through the emotions that you stir within those individuals. And that emotional connection and attachment that they have to your brands and services and ultimately your company. And so I think going forward, as I like to say, the brands that I believe will be most successful are the brands that not only ask how they want the audience and their consumers to feel about their brand, it's the brands that also ask the question, how do I want the audience to feel about themselves when they interact with our brand and their ability to feel empowered to do great things in their life and in the world. Mm. And so that's back to this idea of branding is, is both rational and emotional. And I think right now, coming out of the pandemic, there's so much focus on uh, optimization and efficiency that oftentimes the art side of branding and marketing, if you will, gets put on the shelf. Mm -hmm. And um, so in some ways, this book was a call to action to remember that um, the emotional side of branding and really emphasizing and cultivating a creative culture within your small or large business um, is really important because the creative disciplines that are responsible for storytelling, for creating your brand identity, for developing your consumer experience, oftentimes those are the creative functions that are paramount to creating that deep emotional relationship with your audience. Tell me what it is about brands or companies where, when you said the sort of art side of a brand, why is that always put potentially in a time of crisis or 
put to the bottom of the list. Do you know what I mean? So it's almost sure. like the fu- so everything is about the functionality, the uh, user experience, all this sort of thing. And you're looking at the data and all these sort of what I would say the left side of the brain That's right. gets prioritized up the list. And yet somehow, the, potentially in my circumstances, I've had times in my business where the consumer was actually forgotten. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was all about the internal processes, what the figures were saying, and actually the heart, the heart of the consumer, the thing that was going to be either our success or non-success was completely forgotten. But I've heard that time and time again. Why is it that that happens? And the creative side of branding and brand building, a big part of it is creative risk-taking, Yeah. right? You're dreaming up what potentially could be next in terms of the next product or the next story you want to tell and reveal as a brand or the next immersive experience you want to put out there. And oftentimes doing things that defy convention or disrupt the status quo are definitely not given the space. Like um, incentivizing risk-taking within your team and as I like to say, daydreaming of how you could kind of build these relationships with your consumer oftentimes is put on the back burner when there's kind of a a valley, if you will, in the journey of a brand, whether that's from a business or brand standpoint. And my point is, is that you can't necessarily let the external marketplace forces always dictate Mm -hmm. how much time you're spending on the emotional side of your brand. And um, if you're a brand of empowerment, meaning you get up in the morning and you're there to serve the aspirations and dreams of your audience, then you don't get to take any plays off. Yes. Right? They're on this journey and you're either on that journey with them or not. And I think it's very dangerous if you take an approach where you're just trying to sell something in the moment. Mm. And I think it's much more powerful if you view this relationship with your consumers truly as a journey of progression and transformation. It's all about incremental progress that you're powering with your products and services and stories. And ultimately you're using these transformative moments in their lives or in culture as these these peak moments, if you will. But you're never leaving the conversation and, and, and just saying, see you later. You're, you're, you're always there, but you have to, again, that type of status in an audience's life is earned, not given. Yes. Right. You got to earn it every day. And so, you know, that's why I teach branding at the university of Oregon's graduate school of business. And it is absolutely the art and science of brand building. Mm. A lot of these students from all walks of life come in and say, well, the art side, well, I'm not I'm not a creative type. And it's like, well, no, here's the deal. We all have creative capacity, meaning at some point we will all have to brief or evaluate or steer or guide a creative process, even if we're not applying that creativity, Mm -hmm. even if we don't have creative in our title. Um, At the end of the day, it takes all of us to commit to lifting up and cultivating a culture of creativity in our in our brand. And again, I want to be clear, it can be a brand of two people mm-hmm. or a brand of 2,000, 
But you need, the, as you said, you need both sides. The right brain, which is oftentimes the nonlinear thinkers, daydreamers, if you will, folks like myself. Yes. <laughs> and then maybe people on the left side, which is more analytical. They use data and analytics and they, they have a more maybe rational approach to how they solve problems. You need both. Yeah, you absolutely do. And it's almost times, isn't it, where we've gone through you know, we've gone through, don't know about your side of things there, but, you know, one day we've gone through it. Another day we might be having talk of lockdowns and things like that. So, you know, we've gone through this most unique period of time. And one of the things I found is that some of the brands that I connected with most were highly empathetic of what we were going through, were quite smart in their messaging, were able to read the the audience but didn't stop talking to me. Whereas a lot of small businesses, I actually felt, and I definitely dealt with this and anyone listening, they'll know the feeling like, should I really be speaking out in such a crisis? You know, we've got the war in Ukraine, you know, we had BLM. There's so much now in society that goes on that actually advertising or coming out with a new campaign, it seems, you know, some people can find it very conflicting. You know, this is really uh, not important right now, but actually it's my livelihood. Hmm. Do you feel that that's when brands can actually almost gain their most equity at that point in time? Well, yes. I think we're in a time now where I think brands have to continue to go back to their mission and vision. Hmm. Why they exist, where are they going, and how are they getting there? What's the promise to your audience in these difficult, challenging times? And what are your brand values? And how are you showing up every day, uh, both internally with your employees and externally within the world and within the consumer's life? And then beyond that, what is the tone of voice you're using? Mm. Do you have deep awareness of how people feel, right? Within the images that they see, within the daily experiences of of some of the adversity that, you know, you're crossing paths with, you know, as you said, it's something, something different every day. And so I think it's important for brands to not be tone deaf, um, to be very empathetic of, as I said, strengthening their listening skills, um, their ability to feel the experiences of those, those they serve and show up accordingly. Mm -hmm. That's why I say, serving versus selling yes. is you have, I think, better peripheral vision and a deeper level of empathy. And a, as I said, the revenue um, and business growth is, an, is a great outcome from an exceptional brand strategy, yes. not the other way around. Everything I talk about is certainly in the book is still there to drive growth right? But it's taking a more thoughtful, empathetic approach to your work, to the subject matter, to your teams, and ultimately to the world. Yeah, I could, I blinking couldn't agree with you more. This is just, oh, I want to go back though a little bit, if that's okay, to your childhood, because you grew up in a suburb of Minneapolis uh, with your parents and two brothers. And I read when researching you that you are an ad adoptee and that a personal colour growing up in a predominantly white neighbourhood. You felt you were an outsider as a child. Tell me more about this. 
Yeah. So I certainly was the only person of color, not only at home, not only in the suburb, but in the school system. Wow. That is not an exaggeration. I'm also biracial. So I'm, my birth dad was black and my birth mom was white. And uh, I was adopted by my loving white parents and then grew up in a family of seven. So as you can imagine, in the mid to late 70s and early 80s, as a grade school and middle school kid, I stood out. And um, I don't mean that in the positive sense at that age, if you will. And so I, I definitely experienced a deep level of, of racism throughout those years. And, and so I oftentimes churned to my biggest passions, uh, art and sports. And you could argue that, you know, those were my escape from reality. And I literally drew every day. And my parents fueled that passion. They bought me drafting table and drawing supplies. They got me summer art classes. Um, they even took one of the walls in the small bedroom I shared with my two brothers, and they put a uh, wood frame around the edges of that wall. So it was like a big picture frame. And so on this white wall, they said, this is your mural. You can draw whatever you want. And so as we may talk about all this adversity I experienced as a person of color ultimately became the fuel I used as I moved through the brand Nike and was able to use my position and platform to help others like me or mm. people that I saw maybe um, didn't have access and opportunity that I had at that time. And so that showed up in a lot of the work um, that addressed a lot of the questions in society about um, whether it's race or some of the other pressing issues of, of the specific time. So, you know, by no means do I want to paint a picture where it was a completely negative experience growing up. But with that said, you know, you have to remember that parents, teachers, and professional adults back then the whole mantra was to see no color, right? Mm. Like that's how you dealt with, with race mm. is that we're all equal. So, and the problem with that is, well, then you're not seeing the lived in experience of this kid, what he's going yeah. through or she's going through. Cause it's not equal. Yeah. So I have to say, I'm just, I am so thankful. My kids did not grow up in an environment like that. Um, because as you know, today, you take the opposite approach. You need to recognize the differences and what it's like to live as a, a person of, of color or diversity of, of all types for that matter. Mm -hmm. um, because then and only then can you be helpful and empowering to that individual yeah. or that community. And it, it, what I find so interesting, because when researching you, I know that you you would draw all of the um, sports logos and you would draw superheroes. And this is what you were interested in. And when I think about it, so, so many of my guests I speak to, there is always a golden thread that runs through their lives. And this sort of visual storytelling is obviously one of yours, even from a young age. 
Is this something that you feel now looking back? Because one of my guests said, we should all try to pursue the things that we loved when we were eight years old. Because mm. actually their point of view was that's what at your core made you happy. That's right. Do you think that that's what you did? Absolutely. Well, I think part of it was not finding my voice until much later in life, right? Because I didn't feel I had the opportunity or the invitation to use it, being a bit bit of an outsider, as I said. With that said, I saw how people responded to my ability to put things on paper, to my ability to visualize opportunities, if you will. And ultimately, that became one of my biggest advantages as I moved through the arena of business is I was able to develop and build these teams um, that could internally bring to life amazing concepts that weren't, weren't on a business brief. They weren't on like a, a, a brand concept map, but that power of image and visualization and as they say, you know, it's an overused mantra, but a picture's worth a thousand words. And the idea that you can take in a conversation around a group of people and then create an image of that conversation or that concept of what that end in mind is, where do we want to take people and get people to rally around mm. that image of the future and ultimately put that out in the marketplace. Yeah. And we did that over and over and over again. And Holly, how many times have you been in a conversation and said, well, whatever happened to that idea we had that we talked about you know, two months ago? And then three month, more months go by and people are asking the same questions. So I never wanted that to happen, no. right? And so I always built these a very high functioning like visualization capability within the businesses that I drove. And so that is absolutely rooted in that little kid sitting at his drafting table, drawing superheroes, <laughs> you know, and it just so happened, I didn't know this, but I would be working with real life superheroes in the yeah. form of these athletes. Totally. <laughs> I mean, it's just an amazing thing. I think a lot of people may be listening really relate to what you're talking about. So one of the things that I'm um, doing at Holly & Co and I actually have done all my career is I too have a team that one of our superpowers, I would say, is having that conversation and then we put it into, we actually do it through mood boards. So we we capture the entire feeling, the energy, we create emotion, we create... And literally, we just create mood boards. And my son even says, oh, no, you're not doing another doc, are you? <laughs> right? A doc. And a doc is like this thing, which is basically our interpretation. We're right side of the brain. I'm dyslexic. I'm with my co-founders. That is what they do. I would say that is, if they did nothing else in life, that is their superpower. Mm. So then when we go to a corporate uh, to try and explain the point, we basically brought it to life. They can absolutely understand it. And I think that that has been diminished potentially as a, not diminished, wrong word. Maybe I, I'm really understanding what you're talking about because so many people can't do that. And I think that is the key, isn't it? When you can flip it from being a conversation and, a, and you know, people rattling around, going back and forward and actually put it down and communicate it, then you're halfway there. Absolutely. Well said. You know, so many of these conversations start with the simple question, 
what if? Mm. And there's nothing better than be able to, to answer yes. that question. Yes. And the conversation with a vivid image of what the opportunity is. Mm. And it's been one of Nike's advantages, certainly as a, a marketing company, because there is this mantra of, you know, create the end in mind. Yes. And what that means is like, what does that future actually look and feel like? And how fast can you put pen to paper yeah. or mouse to computer, whatever you want to talk about. Yes. And that's how you get people to rally around an idea. That's how you get investments for your idea. And so even the greatest orators can only go so far in verbally articulating an idea to the point where people are all in. Yes. So there's a lot to be said about the power of a visual. And that's why in the book I talk about I always told people, what's the movie poster of the idea? Yes. Because the way a movie poster functions is it has to distill the 90 minutes of, of story into a single image and headline. And you have to hook people literally in a second mm. if they're in with you or not. And so whether it's a movie poster or a movie trailer, I continue to live by that even in this digital arena that we live within that's you know highly automated at the end of the day i just see the the power of idea visualization as a huge competitive advantage for those companies and brands that adopt that as part of their process and culture gosh i i finally feel like you've given me a gold ceiling of approval here <laughs> you know that the thing that we've been doing for 7 years thinking that we were a bit odd actually is not odd at all. And it's been given your tick. So this is fantastic. Liz, I'm going back to when you were 18 because you attended the Minneapolis College of Art and Design. And then in your final year, you came across an internship program at Nike. These were the two passions of yours colliding. Tell me about how it felt when you landed the internship. Um, I read that your parents lent you their van to make the drive from Minneapolis to Portland, which was a frigging long drive, actually. Yeah, that's right. And that was back when you you didn't wear seatbelts and uh, <laughs> you didn't lock your doors, that kind of thing, because I was actually sleeping in that van. So, yeah, I mean, to grow up with this this brand as a teenager and start to create these deep feelings for this brand that went way beyond product, right? And so by the time I got into college, I had already adopted that just do it lifestyle, if you will. I just didn't realize that there was like an actual company or headquarters that produced all this stuff. Yeah. Right? Of course. You don't really think that way, do you? No, it's not like today where anybody, whether it's a kid or adult, can create their own brand, right? You have all the tools and capabilities in the palm of your hand. But back then, it was like the Pony Express, yeah. right? In terms of knowledge and awareness of what brands were. So, um, yeah, so I get this, this Nike internship and, um, like many of us and those listening, I just simply had no money. And what I did was the credit card companies, sure. You can have a credit card at like 20%, uh, interest. And guess what? You can take, there was $300 cash available on that credit card. Cause I literally had no zero money. So I, that's what I did. I got that $300 and 
But then I, I didn't have transportation. So my parents loaned me their Ford Econoline van with bumper stickers and <laughs> airbrush and, you know, poker tables and a, and a fold down bed, all that stuff. So I drove that the 27 hours across America through the Rocky Mountains, you know, of, of Colorado and through Montana and all this stuff and arrived at Nike and, and you don't know anything and I don't know anybody because really all the internship was is like, be here on this date. Is that end of day? Your orientation starts on this date. So I just drove to the address and slept in the van for three nights because what I found is as usual, most apartments, they wanted first and last month's rent. So I just, I only had the money I had. So um, I needed to meet some people to figure out like, you know, how am I supposed to do this? <laughs> and lo and behold, yeah, I was, it was just the, the generosity. It just, it, you know, it just never fails me the level of, of support and generosity you can get if you also show up with goodwill, right? And so I was just uh, pleasantly surprised by the culture and um, soon enough, I kind of found my, my groove, if you will. It's incredible. What was your, as a young Greg, um, you were now working uh, at Nike as within the design team, right? Is that right? That you started? That's right. What was your relationship like with the brand already? Because this was before social media. So I'm, I'm assuming mm -hmm. your relationship was maybe a poster, maybe the trainer's. Because actually, you think about today, how we've got all these platforms now that we can find out so much more about a brand. But at that time, it must have been quite linear or very utilitarian. I don't know. Really, it was four ways. Because again, they didn't, Nike didn't even have its own stores yet. So it was television, billboard, and print media were the three primary ways that you, and of course, uh, retail experiences, but those were the primary ways you, mm. you got to know a particular brand. And it's just so happy. Here's the incredible part. I was a, a huge uh, devotee, if you will, for Michael Jordan, who was the greatest athlete on the planet at that time, right? And some would argue the greatest athlete of all time, but that's a debate for another day. <laughs> <laughs> so there's this iconic famous poster called the wings poster and i had this poster hanging in my college apartment and it's a poster of michael jordan with his arms spread out and in one hand he's holding the palm and under this incredible black and white image this still image is a william blake quote and the quote says no bird can soar too high if he soars with his own wings so imagine every day I'm coming home and I'm looking at this poster of Michael Jordan. Now, here's the deal, and this is the kicker. I had no idea a year later, I would be one, working at Nike, and two, working for the gentleman that designed the poster. My gosh. Right? And so, and the reason I bring this poster up, because I think it's important for the listeners, is up until that time, Michael Jordan had only been imaged in action on the court doing mm -hmm. gravity-defying dunks and all these things. And here's this brand that said, actually, we're going to take a different approach. We're going to create this beautiful black and white still image, almost like art. 
And then we're going to use this powerful quote underneath it. Mm. And that was, to be honest, at the time, very radical. But it also shows the commitment to the details and the craft of storytelling. Holly, I go back to this over and over again. The brands that rise above everyone else are the brands that go way beyond simple observations and assumptions. They go beyond the conventional ways uh, that everyone else um, sees the world and does things. And so that poster really represents, you know, not only Nike's commitment to creativity and craftsmanship, but going beyond observations mm. and digging deep to find like the deeper truths in your subject or in, in life and revealing those in artistic and profound ways. And you have to, again, emotion by design is committing to the craft of doing that, right? You know, it's not a trade-off mm. with the business. It's an amplifier of the business. As you know, I'm passionate about celebrating small businesses and championing creativity within all of us. That's why I'm thrilled to be working with Adobe Express, who each week are handing over their ad break to a small business founder, shining a light on their own businesses and sharing how Adobe Express really is helping fuel their creativity. Hey, I'm Bridget. And I'm Pete. And we are the team behind Clouds and Currents, an award-winning personalised gifting brand based in the Essex countryside. We've spent the last 10 years creating everything from the UK's first personalised wedding dress hanger to custom engraved guestbooks, bespoke cards and decorations for every occasion. We design, make and package each order in-house by hand. And we love seeing each of our products leaving for far-flung places across the world. We get full creative agency over our range. And our customers trust us to help them mark the moments that matter, whether that be with a bespoke new baby keepsake or a custom birthday card for a loved one. Making all our products by hand can have its drawbacks. And we frequently find that with a young family and only a finite amount of time, we're often pulled away from marketing our products and telling our story. Small businesses are so much more than just the products that we make. And we believe that story is more important than ever in an expanding marketplace. Adobe Express is helping us tell ours to our ever-growing customer base. We started Clouds and Currents from our living room back in 2012. And while our story is definitely worth telling, truth be told, we're pretty good at putting social channels right at the bottom of a very long to-do list. Adobe Express has some really exciting tools and templates that are helping us to show our customers who we are and not just what we make. With the ability to design and save templates in our company's branded colours and styles, created new social content has never been easier. We tend to spend our time creating the studio rather than on our social channels, but Adobe Express has given us the confidence and tools to give it a try quickly and easily. So come and say hello and see what we're up to today in the studio over at Clouds and Currents on Instagram or at our website, cloudsandcurrents.com. Thanks for listening and we hope to see you soon. Thank you once more to Adobe, who have helped to make this podcast episode happen. If you want to find out more about Adobe Express and how it can help your business, head over to adobe.com slash go slash Holly Tucker. Now let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. I just want to ask you, so you said, you know, you joined Nike and they had three billboards, they had TV 
and print maybe was the three things. Yeah. Now I started in advertising when I was 17 years old and I used to have umatic tapes. Do you remember those? And, and mm. and things like that. So for anyone that knows what umatic tape, I think that's literally as much as my son thinks of VHS is <laughs> almost as much as Stonehenge. Um, were things simpler then? You know, the, the, I, I look back at the times where we only had a number of platforms, a non, number of medias, a medium, sorry, and how beautiful that was. Because in a way, you could create the cinema advert, you could create the beautiful press pieces, you could do this. Whereas now what I feel, and I know that a lot of people maybe listening also feel this way, I can't slightly keep up with how many mm. platforms there are that need servicing. And then Instagram wants to introduce something else. So let's do some reels. And then, oh, actually, we're going to do IGTV. Oh, no, actually, we're going to do stories and a grid post. So before I even start, I've got four or five things that I've got to do before I even get out of bed to service what Instagram requires. Now times that by everything. And actually, there's a simplicity, I think, when we started that I really crave. Yeah. I crave mm. feeling at home with some mediums mm. that I can then maybe cultivate. Whereas now I feel that it's actually about ticking a box and it's on the to-do list, what you have to do in order to be a brand. What's your viewpoint there? Great question, by the way. I would say two things. Uh, you know, on, on the one hand, the good news is, obviously back when I, I was developing that relationship with Nike, it really was one way. It was Nike broadcasting its point of view and its values and messages, you know, at the world, mm -hmm. right? And today, of course, now we're in this kind of conversational exchange of stories and ideas. And it's really, you're able to share the passion together for your products and for your brand and whatever it is that you're pursuing in life. And so there is a lot of good in terms of the capabilities and platforms um, and avenues we now have to have these relationships now. With that said, back then, no one ever used the words content no. or assets, right? Because that's faceless and soulless just by name, okay? It only was about the art of storytelling and expressing uh, yourself as a, as a brand and what you believed in. And so, and there was... Uh, total understanding that every interaction was an opportunity to reveal your your story and reveal your soul as a brand, if you will. And I think why my book is a bit of a call to arms is it's a reminder that you're telling stories, not creating content, okay? You're telling stories, not developing assets. Mm. And by the way, you're sharing your story, not distributing content. Yes. So I'm exaggerating for effect. Yeah. Because it's important that especially young professionals that are just coming in to these professions don't get trapped in only understanding the one dimension of marketing, which a 100%, you have to meet the consumer where they are not where you want them to be, which means you need to act with speed and agility. Like that's just 
paramount right now. With that said, you need to develop a process and a team culture where the craft of storytelling through every image and every word and every film story, real, et cetera, is respected, mm-hmm. right? Because once you lose that respect, it's really hard to build it back. Yes. And you can imagine the most valuable company in the world, Apple, every single employee is completely in lockstep with the importance of brand identity, brand storytelling, and the ceremony of the brand experience, whether it's the packaging, whether it's the directions on how you're supposed to set up your iPhone, whatever it is, every single person there understands and is committed to that. And it's not content. No. It's story. (laughs) Yeah. I bet you it's banned there, that even that word. You spent 27 years at Nike, working your way up from intern to CMO, and you ultimately transforming it from a shoe company to a brand that resonates globally and most importantly, emotionally. What was that journey like for you going from intern to leader in a company so famous? Well, the good news is just as failure leads to success and innovation, you are allowed to kind of find your way and make mistakes, learn from them, build on what works. And as someone who is an introvert, as I say in the book, uh, I'm kind of, it's kind of the athlete artist who's showing up today. Is it the extroverted (laughs) artist or the introverted, uh, you know, artist or the extroverted uh, sportsman, if you will? You know, I spent so much time putting things on paper, figuratively speaking, with my hands. That's what I led through. And it wasn't until I was faced with, wow, now I'm actually responsible for this small team, right? And I worked on, from the beginning, I worked on global football, Mm -hmm. right? All the national football teams, like the Brazil national team or the U.S. national team, and then all the clubs around the world, Premier League teams, et cetera. And so my first job as a leader, if you will, of people was the creative director of Nike's global football business, right? As that was starting to accelerate and grow. So yeah, I had to I had to learn how to lead through my words, not just, you know, through what I created. And um that obviously takes time, right? But mm. it gets back to my life perspective and experiences, right? And walking into those rooms and having the necessary empathy for individuals to figure out like what was their, maybe some of their hidden talents that need to be nurtured and revealed. And how do you create the level of chemistry um, necessary to build these integrated global kind of campaigns and experiences? And so that, that whole idea of win together, rise higher kind of mantra, if you will, win as a team. So then that started to lead to more and more responsibility. And um, there was a 10-year stretch there where I was responsible for the, the essentially the visual image of the brand, Gosh. right? With teams in Shanghai and Amsterdam and, and around the world, right? And so what that got into is clarity of vision. Like when you start to get into these very large, expansive teams that oftentimes are sitting in different parts of the world, 
you can't leave things to subjectivity, even in a creative world. Um, you have to be very clear because oftentimes you can't be in the room. That's when I started to partner with the teams and create these, uh, let's call them documents of thought, if you will, like uh, you know, a creative manifesto or you know, a brand ethos. And you're, you're starting to articulate what you believe in the principles of creativity for brand design, if you will. And then just to fast forward, ultimately, I was faced with the decision in 2010. I was told, hey, we, we have you on the succession plan for, you know, leading marketing someday or leading design someday. Oh, wow. But here's the deal. You, you have to make a decision of what path you want to take. And it's like, well, I don't want to make a decision. I'm a hybrid. I love brand strategy and I love brand creativity. <laughs> and it's like, and, and people would say, well, that must have been amazing to be on the succession plan of both of those massive organizations. To be honest, it was really difficult to say, I have to make this decision. But ultimately, I chose the marketing path because what that meant is I could start to take more on more responsibility over global advertising, mm. over digital marketing, social media marketing, and all these kind of rich, expansive disciplines that were still creative. And um, that's what set me on this path towards the heading up marketing for biased opinion, the most iconic influential brand in the world. Absolutely. So here's this artist intern that one day finds his way into the seat of chief marketing officer, but I never ever lost that artist inside me. Mm -hmm. That was a bit of a daydreamer and um, just really tried to integrate the two functions that oftentimes are at, in conflict with one another. Yes, they are. Design and marketing, right? Yeah. I was going to ask you this. I mean, having hired CMOs myself, having met other people, you've got, am I wrong in thinking this? You've got that sort of two camps where, you know, I'm wondering a hypothesis is that you nailed this. You were able to the magic you did because you actually came from the respect of the artistic side of brand first, then leading you into the space that you were in. Whereas potentially, you know, and I, I don't know about yourself in the US, but for me, you know, I find marketing generally is at its all-time lowest ebb. You know, I'm unimpressed the majority of the time because we're in a world where we're looking at time, we're looking at efficiencies, we're looking at 24-hour ordering. We're you know, the, 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 the space of emotional connection is almost non-existent, I would say. One of the questions I ask those who follow me is, you know, tell me a brand that you're emotionally connected to. This is on the female space. And I've maybe asked two, 300 women over a year, and not one person can answer me one brand that connects with a female here in the UK. Not one. And this is, you know, so this is the point where I actually think we're doing a bad job here in the, U in, in the UK because potentially the CMOs who are now leading these companies have come maybe from the left side of the brain. They're looking at what is performing. They're understanding the metrics. They're looking at what ad spend they'll put onto Google. They're looking all these sorts of things rather than potentially where maybe yourself or some a business like Apple have got visionary 
artistically led CMOs. I mean, mm. what's your point of view there? Because I don't know in the US if you're as disappointed as I am here in the UK. Well, I think part of it's a byproduct of where the focus has been over the last two years as brands, large and small, mm -hmm. have accelerated their digital commerce offense. Thankfully, I'd already started that journey, but those that hadn't, you know, you can see them struggling on that. And some didn't make it mm. because at the end of the day, with the lockdowns, obviously the relationship really shifted to this digital arena. And oftentimes the consumer's only platform upon which they engage with brands is in the palm of their hand through their smartphone yeah. uh, on that. And obviously now that things are opening up, you know, you have to start to expand the touch points in which you're engaging with your audience. And so I think there's maybe a lack of imagination and innovation in what we're seeing in, the, in terms of brand storytelling and brand engagement. Uh, I think some of that will gradually level out and you'll start to see more emotion infused and surrounding uh, the products and services that are, are brought out in the world by brands. But back to your, you know, what is the best structure? I think every brand, you know, oftentimes needs something a little bit different depending on where they are in their maturity, where the marketplace is, and where consumers are, right? And certainly if you're, you're a youth brand, meaning you're engaging with youth culture and you're trying to be with or in front of the cultural currents of the day, you know, you always have to be evolving. Yes. Uh, if you're one of those brands. And, you know, it's just interesting, isn't it, that you've seen the rise of the chief brand officer yes. as a role. Yes. Right. And I think what the chief brand officer, you know, part of what that is, is this fusion of, of art and science. It's almost like the chief marketing officer and the chief creative officer fuse together to create the chief brand officer. And I really think that's why you see so many companies leaning into that top job is they're trying to find that balance. But to your point, so either you find that in one individual, which is really, really hard, by the way. Yes. You know, but the conversation- I would say near impossible. The conversations <laughs> I'm having with larger brands, um, just in terms of consulting and, and advising is, Really making sure that you, you know, oftentimes it's two individuals. Mm -hmm. You know, I always ask the question, if brand building is an art and science, does art have a seat at the executive table or not? Wow. You know, that's a question that needs to be answered. And so that role of the chief creative officer can be the one provided that they have that seat and they have that respect and the resources behind them to be the one who is the, the brand steward, who is the steward of the brand story. Because that's the second question I always ask. Who in the room when the big decisions are being made is the holder and protector of the brand story? Because if, they're not, if there's no one serving that role in the room, it shows up it in, does. in what you bring out into the world. And I think that's, Holly, I think that's what you were getting at. That's what you're feeling. And, and you know, one of the things I, I say to founders and those who run their own business, that is your job. You know, that is the amazing job of a founder, certainly in those young days when, 
you barely can afford the table, let alone seats at it, you know, is that you as a founder are that brand custodian. You are that person that you need to understand that the brand and its and its power is almighty. It's absolutely almighty. And you as that founder need to protect it with everything that you can. Um, and potentially what happens as organizations grow, as you said, the brand does not have a seat at the table. The, the, the CMO has a seat at the table. And if they're more left side of the brain, that can be directed one way. But then there needs to be someone who is calling it. Is And as you said, it's being listened to. Tell me, I read an article and you said, I love the idea of being able to close your eyes and based on the signals, whether they're visual or audio, being able to put your finger on who that brand is. I thought that was very powerful and something that we would all be able to do maybe with truly iconic brands, Apple, Coca-Cola, Nike, of course. Mm. How do you think you build a brand with that truly iconic identity? And for those of you who are listening going, Holly, 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 there's four of us in this company. There's one of us in this company. I always say to them, Greg, and I don't know if you believe, you know, what you do from day one with your brand is so important. You know, never believe because you're small that the brand protection or the fact that it will grow one day, but you've got to put the right formulation in place from day one, the right scaffolding, the right foundations, you know. Mm. And so that's I'm telling everybody here, do not turn off right there. We're not just talking about larger organizations. No. Greg, how do you think you would build a brand with truly iconic identity? Yeah, well, I have deep conviction with this. And as I like to say, this isn't an opinion. This is a directive. Yes. This is I love that. This is my how I advise startups, small companies, small business owners, as well as graduate school students who are want to become the next GMs, the next marketing directors, etc. When you start your brand, well, you've created a product, right? And then as soon as you name that product, you are a brand but there is no awareness on who you are beyond that. So there's three documents you must create when you're starting out and you must revisit throughout the life of your brand. Number one, your brand house. You need to get this on one sheet of paper. It's your belief, you know, why you exist. It's your mission and vision. Where are you going and how are you getting there? And it's your values. Like what are the characteristics and traits that make you who you are? And that anyone in your company, whether it's two people or 20, need to have that like front and center. That's one. Second, your brand identity, your name, your logo type or wordmark or logo, your brand color. Yes. Right. And the typeface um, that you use to express your voice. This is not someone else's job. This is our job. Okay. It's really important that your brand identity is as important as your brand house, because those are the building blocks that ultimately lead to the Coca-Cola red, to the mm. Tiffany blue, mm. to the Nike orange. And then finally, the third document, again, one page is your brand personality. What are the traits, just like a human being that you want to be known for? Because these are the traits that you're going to put out into the world. And when you're not in the room, you want to make sure that's what you're known for. So write those down. So I'm a big believer of, of getting these things on paper and even better 
on one sheet of paper. Because oftentimes when I ask for them from a brand, I get a, a big deck that I have to, you know, a 30-page yeah. keynote. And I'm kind of trying to get through it to figure out, like, you know, where are those building blocks? So, and that's why I say it's it's not a, an opinion. It's, it's, it's a directive. It's a directive. Because, and simply because I found it to be the lifeblood of creating a successful, iconic brand with meaning in people's lives and in culture is so much of it just goes back to mastering the basic fundamentals mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of branding. It's not the bright, shiny stuff that you'll get to later. You must set the vision and the foundation for which you're going to build your brand on. Brilliant advice. So clear. Tell me, it's staggering because a brand like Nike, founded nearly 60 years ago, can also feel so incredibly fresh and relevant. When I speak to small businesses and dreamers and they want to be able to run their businesses forever. And I said, well, then that means you need to build a brand with longevity, right? This isn't tactical. This is what you said. You just talked about the foundations that you have to build. And there's so many brands, aren't there, that you almost wonder, are they going to stand the test of time? Because they've made the logo so it can fit into an app, right? So that they've redesigned the logo because some brand consultancy said, no, you shouldn't be called a, such a long name, even though that's everything that they're about. I want it to fit into an app. I want to be able to say it in a second. You're like, well, you just lost everything that we've built up or a brand's built up just by that one thing. So when we talk about brand longevity, being there for decades and decades as part of someone's life, someone that can grow up in a brand like Nike, how, what do you think are some fundamentals for a brand to stand the time, stand the test of time? I believe it starts with making sure that you've, you have a proposition for your audience, that an invitation to be a part of something bigger than oneself, right? Back to this idea of creating a movement mm -hmm. that you've, you've painted a picture of this audacious future that you're inviting consumers to, whether you're a car company or a consumer products or a food and beverage company yeah. or a sports company. So that you're starting out with this aspirational vision that goes beyond just your products. Yes. Right? Um, because again, that's going to maybe um, get you a lot of short-term growth, but it might become pretty transactional. So back to, you know, Apple, you know, think different. I believe they look at everyone as to having creative capacity and they want to unlock that through iPhoto, iTunes, um, their camera technology. Yeah, Those are tools of empowerment to help their audience achieve their creative potential over a lifetime. And everybody's invited. Like it's a democracy of creativity. To me, that's how I look at Apple. So automatically, when you're marching towards that North Star, there's an incredible amount of, of business opportunity. It never ends. You know, yes. just like with Nike, everybody's an athlete. And by the way, we're all on this pursuit of our best version of ourselves as athletes and to achieve this, this collective human potential, mm -hmm. okay? And I believe, I don't care if you're, you're a hardware store, you know, yeah. or um, a florist, 
you have the ability to sit down and think about what the invitation is. What is the movement you're inviting people to join? So tell me, Greg, if I'm a florist and I'm, I'm listening to you, I'm going, but hang on, Greg, I can't create a movement. I mean, what are you, ta- what are you talking about? I'm, I'm just a florist here. You just buy a bouquet of flowers from me. Okay, but that's, that's not the end of the journey or the relationship. The flowers are a means to achieve something in your life. That's, that's my point. And so there's the, the what and the why. The what is the flowers, but why are you doing this, right? So you're doing it to create the best environment for you to flourish because you want to be surrounded by life, if you will, through, through you know, um, floral and plants, et cetera. So I'm just riffing here. So yeah, yeah, no, I love this. Go, go, we're going so, with you. So, so that's, that's, that's my point. It's like, you didn't just walk in to buy plants. You walked in to create the best environment for you because you're living in it every day and you need signals back to emotion. What you're purchasing ultimately become the signals that inspire the greatest emotions within you. Mm. So I'm, I'm getting a bit maybe. <laughs> I know I put you on this intellectual here, but my point is, is it's like th- those are the questions though, that businesses need to, to ask. It's like, what is the proposition, mm. right? You're not just selling something you've created these products or you're providing this merchandise because you want to empower people to create something in their life that gives them happiness, um, gives them greater connection to what they're passionate about mm-hmm. and um, makes them healthier. So that's what I would say there. And that's, that's what I advise, you know, certainly the startups that I work with is to keep coming back to that question. Yes. What's the invitation? What's the proposition? What's that just do it? And that's why you wanted to write the book, Emotion by Design, um, because it's it's interesting. So you've had this experience over the last 27 years, and you obviously have come across many, many businesses. You also work with startups, like we, as we know. Was this a book that you just wanted to just sort of, you know, say to people, do not send me a 30 page uh, PowerPoint? You know, this is actually what you've got to do. Was it your shortcut to people to almost go, you know, these are my lessons that I'm going to give you in order to build your own Nike? Yeah, I mean, it's the last chapter is called Leave a Legacy, Not Just a Memory. Had I just been in these different positions and kept all that experience and knowledge and perspective to myself, then most likely I would have left a lot of indelible memories in consumers and in teammates in those moments. But to truly leave a legacy, I believe I had an opportunity to share further and really distill down what I believed and that philosophy and methodology and give people a blueprint to what I felt was a way to build a successful brand, right? Whether small or large. And I wanted to do this, you know, I I created this relatively quickly in terms of, you know, uh, about an 18 month timeline. Um, Because I, I, as I said, it's a call to arms, if you will. I just felt that I needed to get this idea of investing in the creative practice 
within your brand that leads to these emotional connections because it is those deep emotional connections that will then allow you to play a greater role in the world. Yeah. And when we say change the world, I really think that's possible. And I really feel brands can lead from the front in that, that respect. So yeah, I just, just like leadership, it's like, people can't emulate me. They can, they can adopt some of these principles, just like I can't be someone else, but I can draw from those experiences if they're turned into practical, you know, advice and tips, if you will. Yeah. I guess the last thing I would say here is, you know, the, the book isn't about, uh, I want people to feel a certain way about me. Uh, it gets back to this idea of, are they more empowered and will they be able to improve their practice more after they read it or not? Mm -hmm. That's what I'm interested in. Yeah. Not so much if people, you know, <laughs> find me interesting. I want them to feel like, well, now I feel I have a couple of filters or prompts that I can use throughout my day when I'm assessing or evaluating opportunities. Mm -hmm. um, to me, that would be success. Yeah. What do you think is the future of brands? I, we Recently, I was talking at Holly & Co and I was trying to communicate that brands and businesses are more powerful than government. You know, this is actually where we're facing, you know, potentially we've got to get quite used to in the way that we're being spoken to now through media is that potentially there's always going to be another crisis, you know, that we might just be living in that day and age. You know, we've gone through haven't we? But certainly in the UK, we went through Brexit. We couldn't have think, think of anything worse. You know, then we le land into a pandemic. We come out the pandemic. Well, we didn't even come out the pandemic. Suddenly there's a war. It is a quite a heavy time. And I really try and speak to people about how, you know, it's a brand. If you were able to gain an emotional connection with your customer, create a movement like Nike, that it is just more powerful than anything else, really. Do you think that they're going to play a very important part in our future if brands do get it right? Definitely. And I think you've seen that just over the last two years. Uh, you've seen brands more often connect what they sell with what the world needs in a given time around a particular issue. And there's so many different ways brands can contribute to moving society forward in a positive way. It doesn't always have to be responding with storytelling. You know, there's so many different avenues to try to create the level of change, but um, it comes back to emotion mm -hmm. and it comes back to empathy. You know, the best brands, the ones that maybe are able to respond to cultural and current events in a way that feels authentic are the brands that have spent the time to, again, dig deep and reveal a truth or an insight within the situation that is below the surface. And then they reveal that in the most profound of ways, and it moves people. That's the power of storytelling, right? Mm. It's both the insight that has been kind of unearthed, and then it's the creative practice to, to bring that to life in ways that you know, someone sits back and said, wow, well, I never thought of it that way. Yeah. Or now that you've, you've said that in that way, 
I'm going to think about this differently. And I think that's what emotional storytelling can do of the highest order. And that's what you, you saw certainly with, you know, the Kaepernick work, mm. um, is it struck a chord using the platform of sport and the sacrifice that Colin made and expressing that in an anthemic way where people oftentimes saw themselves in that movement and in that message. And that's yeah. quite powerful when you see yourself in a brand or in a story. As I said, growing up, I saw others that were outsiders too. And then you grow up and when you find yourself in a particular position, you're gonna invite them in Yes, and you're gonna look out for them. And I think that's part of what brands can do is give access to their innovation and inspiration to those that don't have um, the means to get it. And I think you're gonna see more and more of that over the next five to 10 years a much deeper commitment to reaching out to underserved communities with the platform and tools and products and services that you have. And people should be excited about that. Because to your point, yes, I don't think this, there's, we're definitely in the cycle of these major events happening in our lives and that may not stop. But I'm hugely optimistic based on what I've seen in the world of brands and them taking, grabbing the opportunity and thinking about it as their responsibility Yes, and having the yes. support of the shareholders and the employees and the consumers themselves to go out and do it. Like a perfect storm, isn't it? What you're talking about. There's suddenly these colliding parts that potentially mean brand is going to have its day. You know, and and that you've made from a very cynical position that I was in, Greg, here in the UK, you've brought light to this subject for me. I absolutely, as you know, can already tell, and you're a busy man, I could talk to you all day. And it's been a total privilege to speak about this subject, to speak about your book. Before you go, though, I end all interviews with the analogy that being on a journey as yourself, what you've gone through, journeys of founders it's like being on an epic roller coaster. And obviously your cart would be branded beautifully. I mean, there you go. You would have some mood boards going on about your roller coaster. What would you say has been one of your biggest lows? Well, I, hey, I, I have to actually, if I can, I mean, I had something very profound uh, happen as I wrote this book. Um, I discovered my birth families. Wow. Uh, one year ago, actually one year ago, almost to the day. And over the last year, I've gotten to know my families and, you know, to grow up with all these questions about everything from things you take for granted. Why do I look this way? Why do I have an affinity for, for these things? Where does my passion characteristics come from? And to discover the answers to those questions, you know, one day just sitting reading the newspaper and i got a message through 23andme the dna service and it was someone who turned out to be my sister and then that meant her mom was my mom wow. and then that led to meeting generations of family and so that's you know obviously beyond my the birth of my children and the marriage to my wife that's been 
one of the greatest highs of my life. Now, within that was a pretty big low because I found that my birth dad passed away two years earlier. And so I was two years too late. And not only um, had he passed away, but twice he had tried to find me over the years. And because he had gone to see, when you, when you turn 18, you can, you know, back then you can leave a note in your adoption folder that says anyone that wants to find me, here's my information. I give them permission to. Well, when I was 18, that's the last thing I was thinking about. But yeah, he had come to, to look for me on a couple occasions and that, that didn't happen. And so to come that close mm. to meeting him was, was a big low point, but here's the happy ending to that. Um, out of that, there's such an outpouring of information, memorabilia, photos, stories, documents that I could fill this, you know, an entire room with his life all the way down to here's his, you know, here's his wallet, here's his mm. African walking stick. And so this massive deep dive into the African-American side of my life has been just priceless. I can't, it's, it's just such a um, life bonus. And then to physically spend time with these family members who look like me, <laughs> I can't emphasize that enough. So wow. there's a there's a big low in there, but it's ultimately churned out to a huge high, and I'm just so happy about it. Oh, I am so happy for you. That must have been totally profound. Greg, thank you for sharing all of your insights with us today, and your high and low is like no other, really. It was combined, but phenomenal. It's that time of the podcast where I hand over to my guests to read a letter to their younger self. And um, as those who listen to this podcast week in, week out, know that I do not know what you've written. But Greg, thank you so, so much for sharing a little bit of your soul with us today. Thank you. And so I will now read the letter. Dear seven-year-old self, I know you are feeling like an outsider right now. It's hard to find a sense of belonging when you're the only one who looks like you in the entire school. But your uniqueness will become your greatest asset, and you will find your community and your voice. You will draw upon the racism you're experiencing and grow up to fight racial injustice around the world as a leader of one of the most influential brands on the planet. You will be empowered to use your position and platform to break down barriers and give access and opportunity to those that are either unseen or seen as less than, the outsiders like yourself. The very adversity you face now will be the rocket fuel you use to lead with courage and conviction in pushing the world forward in the most positive of ways. I also see you, you enjoy losing yourself in your artistic endeavors. This is a good thing. Your head may be in the clouds at times, but only because you are dreaming up what's next. You are asking the quintessential question for all and any innovative pursuit. What if? And you answer it through your art. Keep drawing all those superheroes from your favorite comic books, because one day you will be working with them in the form of the greatest athletes on earth. Drawing is your superpower and your curiosity is the energy source for that superpower. 
your imagination, your ability to put your dreams on paper in vivid detail are what will inspire so many in the future to come along for the ride. Don't ever feel like you need someone's permission to use your imagination. Continue to hone this creative talent that you have been given. Use it to show people what our potential is as a human race when we all show up as the best versions of ourselves. Draw that picture and we will follow your lead. Love it. Love it. You know, you've done something for me today and listening to that letter. You know, there are so many people who want to believe in brands and want to build brands. And I think the way that you've articulated the brand, you're not only your own story, but through the brand of Nike, through your work has just been so refreshing. And I have to say, I, I'm looking forward to what you are now talking about, which is the future of brands and, and maybe helping our society, helping what we're you know traveling through at the moment, that we can all find our homes and our emotional connections with companies. And it's just been a beautiful conversation. And I'm two chapters into your book. And I have to say, I am learning lots. My book has got tons of scribbles in them. And um, and I always like to share the scribbles with the team and everything. So thank you so, so much um, for also writing that. It's been a pleasure, Greg. Holly, thank you. Absolute honor to share the screen and the time today with you. I've really enjoyed this conversations and I've also enjoyed listening to your insights. And that also gives me a partner in crime, if you will, <laughs> on the future of brands. And uh, it's just, uh, I've also found inspiration in our conversation and um, it's just been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Greg. Before you go, don't forget to head to adobe.com slash go slash Holly Tucker to find out how Adobe Express can fuel creativity in your business. And if you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co. 